Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to uh, be together this morning and uh, to start our series on my most favorite time of the year, uh, Christmas. And uh, not really, but I am glad uh, to be doing this together. We're going to do this a l- very differently than we um, have done this uh, in the past. This is uh, my 22nd, I believe, or 23rd, sorry, 23rd uh, Advent Christmas season uh, here at Port City and been able to... Uh, do this, and every year I recognize what Advent is, and every year I consciously try to avoid what Advent um, is. And there, there are reasons, and I'm going to tell you some of them uh, in just a moment. But um, <clears throat> Advent is, is obviously, it's, a, it's preparation. It's a time for us to prepare for the arrival of Christ, and it, that's what Advent literally means. It means, it means to uh, arrival, uh, to arrive. And so uh, what we want to do over the next um, few weeks together is to prepare ourselves for Christmas. And we don't want to just uh, think about or consider um, you know, his uh, coming incarnation, coming as a baby in a manger and Christmas and all the nativity stuff. Um, the historical church, what Advent has, has long been about, was certainly the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus, but also the expectancy of his return, of his um, coming back, uh, his second coming. And um, we were talking with um, Megan, we just hired her. She's one of our designers here at the church. And she did all the, the graphics uh, for our Christmas season, which is beautiful. And all the stuff you've seen, it's just absolutely beautiful. She's done an incredible job with it. And she came in the office, her and JJ, they were in there, we were talking. And she said, what is, um, what is, what's the kind of tone, what's the idea of, of the Christmas message, the Christmas series? As well, it's going to be kind of a classical Advents. We want to do something that's really traditional in that sense. And also, um, we're going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And she kind of, I said, I'm only half kidding. Uh, so if you have your Bibles uh, this morning, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. And I'm not kidding. Uh, that's what we're going to look at um, today. It should be a lot of fun. Um, one of the things we, we have done uh, this season is we are, um, we've created, I don't know if you remember the uh, Summer Sabbath, we did a summer podcast series where we would um, use five days a week these summer reflections, uh, devotions on our podcast. Uh, you can get it on our app, Google, um, uh, you know, Spotify, wherever you get your um, podcast at. And these are sort of daily readings. And I've talked to a lot of people, myself included. I'm not a podcast person. I like, vis- I like to, to stop and read. And a lot of times if I'm listening to a podcast, I feel like I'm going to be doing something. And part of what I did over the summer what I would encourage you to do, uh, they'll, they'll start out tomorrow, so you just go, you'll download or, or listen to it on there and on, the, um, on the app and you can listen to it. Um, but a lot of times when we're listening to something, we feel like we need to be doing something. We feel like we're wasting time if we're not. And part of the discipline of this is to just stop and to listen and to receive what is being offered. These are gonna be um, readings throughout the Gospels, uh, letting Jesus sort of reintroduce himself to us as we prepare for his arrival, and particularly what uh, his, the second arrival would mean for us. And we think about the Lord's coming, and I'll tell you what, I'm, what I mean in just a second by this, but Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, the Lord is coming. He's always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment in your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And I like that. I think that's a really good 
way for us to think about this. But there's always been sort of some problems for me as I've wrestled with this for most of my life. Advent allows us to reorient our lives to the way of Jesus, to consider some things that He want us to do here and now. And oftentimes I read most of the Bible through that particular lens. Uh, and of course, we're reminded at Christmas of the power of his promise, right? That, that Jesus would come to us and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have the promise of his presence with us. And that's certainly part of the story, but it's not the whole. Advent has two components. It has his incarnation, his, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It has all that he came in a manger um, to, to human flesh, his incarnation, but it also is about reconciliation. It's the return of Jesus to return the thing, to return things the way God has intended them to be. So I want us to look at this passage. We need a vision for this. I think it's really different than a lot of us have grown up in. Uh, Titus chapter two, I've read this verse so many times and I skip over a particular part and I'll show you why and what I mean as we read this together. Titus chapter two, verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This reads like the Christmas story. For unto us, a child is born, right? In the city of David, uh, this is good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto us is born in the city of the earth. Right? There's this, this picture that's for all people. The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. And this is the part I particularly like because it does something. It teaches us. This revelation of God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives right here, right now. I like that. Because I can write that I'm a journal. I can say, okay, God, what do you mean to do about this today? Then there's this next part, while we wait for this blessed hope. While we wait for this blessed hope. So I just began to kind of think about this, and it's not just, it's not just hope, it's a particular kind of hope. It's a blessed hope. And you realize that hope requires uncertainty. You don't hope, I was gonna say you don't hope that Carolina won, but you probably did, I'm just kidding, sorry. It was just in my head, it just came out. You don't hope that yesterday was a good day, right? Why? Because you know whether it was or wasn't. Hope always exists out in front of it. It always exists where the future is uncertain. And in fact, the more uncertain it is, the more desperate, the more deep your hope becomes. So he's talking about this blessed hope. And this is what he says. We keep reading in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, and here's what it is. The appearing of the glory of our God, uh, the glory of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for him to return. We are looking for him to return. And then he continues on, uh, Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works or who are eager to do good. So there's a, a sense of, of purifying. Something has to happen in us. Uh, and then there's a sense of this this movement outward, that there's a, a zealousness um, for these, what he calls good works, this goodness, I'm gonna say, what we've been talking about the last few weeks, this, this movement in that direction. And so <clears throat> I always think about this, and I grew up in the 80s, and I know y'all are jealous of that. But I grew up in the 80s, and I remember this was a big time where people were writing books, it seemed like every other month about the end of the world, who's the Antichrist, and people would be reading Revelation from this sort of lens, trying to figure out which chapter of Revelation are we in today. 
And it would go, I, mean, I remember going all the way back, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist and Russia was the beast. And, you know, the Prince wrote a song about it, right? Because we're going to party like it's 1999. Uh, and all of this stuff was going on. And then you move in. I remember uh, people saying that Barack Obama was the Antichrist and people saying uh, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and people saying Donald Trump was the Antichrist and all these different things. Everybody's looking to see what kind of map Revelation lays out for us to figure out what this would be like. And I've always kind of thought about this. Like I know as a Christian, I grew up in this, that, that people, I would hear people talking about longing for Jesus to return. And I always kind of just pressure tested myself on this. Like, right, why, why do I not long for Jesus to return? I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but you know you should want Jesus to return, but somewhere in your mind, you're just like, I don't know if I can get behind that quite today. I remember hearing this, especially when I was a kid. I remember thinking, I don't want Jesus to return. And I can tell you exactly why, because there are things that I have not got to experience yet that I still want to experience, right? If Jesus came before I was 16, I wasn't getting my driver's license. That was gonna be problematic. Remember this? You keep thinking that somehow if Jesus returns, he's gonna interrupt your plans because you got things you wanna experience, things you wanna do, and him returning ends all that. And then there's no chance of you ever experiencing it again. And so that was a problem for me. That was one of the reasons I, I kind of remember thinking, okay, I don't want Jesus to return yet because I got some things I wanna do. But there's a second reason. And what, most, what I heard was that when Jesus was returned, right, it was gonna unleash violence and warfare on this world like it has never seen before. The Armageddon, the whole thing, and I'm thinking like, I'm not really sure I want that either. And so both of these things sort of led me to kind of a no thanks, I'll just take his grace, figure out how it teaches me to do things here and now, and that's what I'll do. And all of a sudden it robs us of something that we see as very important, which is this idea of a blessed hope. Most of us have read this, this book of Revelation at the end of your Bibles. It's written in, um, uh, it's, it's a written in a tradition that was very common in the first century. It's known as Jewish apocalyptic literature. Uh, if, you read, if you read the New Testament, then you get to Revelation. Revelation feels like, what just happened? Like, did John go smoke something and come back and, and write this? Like, what is going on? But if you read it next to Ezekiel or Daniel or Jeremiah, you'll begin to see, oh, this sounds very familiar. The imagery, the metaphors, the symbolism, all these things were very familiar to this, this, uh, this type of literature that John was writing for us. John has this vision, he records it for us at the end of the book. And what most people, at least my upbringing, has led me, I read Revelation, you're reading it as like a Da Vinci Code kind of thing. See if you can find out who's what and who's where. Like looking for all the signs, figure out when the world is actually going to end. And <clears throat> about a decade ago, I kind of gave up thinking that Revelation was some kind of code book to figure out when the end of the world was gonna come. I just kind of just said, that's, I don't think that's it. And that led to some, of, some indifference about it, then some exploration. And probably about, uh, I don't know, probably maybe a year or so ago, I woke up on a Saturday morning. I've been like reading different things in Revelation, Revelation 19, reading the end, talking about this reunification of the heavens and the earth. Like what does this end of the book really look like? Trying to get a vision, my, my word this year is imagination, trying to get a vision for this. So one Saturday morning, I woke up really early and I just read Revelation start to finish, all 22 chapters, just the whole thing in one sitting. And let me tell you, it is bizarre. And that led me to kind of researching and doing some things. I've read some different books and different scholars. And what I've noticed is there are some things that are really interesting about Revelation. Most of us think it's sort of this linear code that moves from one direction to another to help us determine who the Antichrist is, to know who to stay away from, to know who we're supposed to war against, and all those different things. 
But it's actually these three cycles of the same story. If you read it, this is, this is how a lot of times Isaiah would be built, or this is how Ezekiel would be built. There would be a, a story that would come in a loop and it would close, and it would tell the same story with a little bit more intensity and broad itself, and then conclude again, there would be a third, and it would broaden even more with a little bit more intensity. And you'll find Re- Revelation finds, uh, sort of follows the same pattern. And the first idea in it is that this first part, these seven letters to these seven churches are very personal. A lot of us have grabbed or we've heard verses out of Revelation used like this, right? Where it talks about that if you are neither hot nor, because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. And what you think is that because you're not red hot for God, you're not like all in for him, then you just need to be totally against him, right? Hot or cold. And that's not at all what that verse means. There's a context around it. In the Odyssey, which is where it's written, there's, there's a context around this. We need to pay attention to, to understand, are we misread what's happened, what God is saying to us. It's a call for this sense of personal transformation, for something to happen in us. Number two is the idea, and I'm gonna put this down because there's really sort of a collective nature to what's happening in Revelation, this sort of undermining of systems. And I think what it's driving at is this return or this redemption of a way of life, a way in which human beings are designed and we are supposed to live. Until this sort of final chapter in the third saga of this book uh, of Revelation, um, which is really the final return. It's when Jesus comes back, it's this blessed hope when he comes back and he returns everything to the way that God intended it to be. It would be like what we've been using this word over the last few weeks, this idea of reconciliation. So this is sort of how the book is set up. So these first Three chapters are these personal letters, which are inviting us to enter into a way that God would do something in us. And then these second um, letters. So I want us to just take a moment um, and, and consider this. When we began um, the last few weeks, we left this last series off with a vision for what it would be like, um, what it could be like if we lived in this way of goodness that God has made available to us. That we think about a way of life where people are treated with worth and dignity and their contribution to to others is, is valued and is actually needed as they offer their lives to being a part of something meaningful, some kind of tapestry of humanity that bears God's image, that resembles the goodness that God is and what he intends in this world. That we sort of live in this way where we... Uh, contribute and cooperate with God and what he has intended all along. There's a sense of purpose, not just in what we do, but in the fact that we belong to each other. Uh, there's sort of an optimism that goes along with this, and you sort of contrast that uh, with a sense of doom that we seem to live in today, and then you add to that doom the way we often read the book of Revelation, which only con- confirms the doom for which we are doomed for. Have y'all heard this before, right? Doesn't Revelation feel like that? that feel like that? So what I want to invite us to do is to sit down and read it. Y'all know whenever I've told you this before, whenever I'm kind of puzzled with a book, which is often, I print it off on cardstock and then I lay it out in front of me so that I can read it. There's chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. There's the letters to the churches, Laodicea, chapter four and chapter five. And this is where I want to look. Chapter four and chapter five. So John writes these letters, these first little bit, and this is the Apostle John who wrote the three letters at the end of the New Testament. He wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God and uh, he, everything that has been created came through him. All of that is John. So John is writing this as well. Um, and he, he begins, it says that he's caught up in the spirit and he sees all of these things. And it's like jaspers and rubies and rainbows and 24 thrones and seated on these thrones are 24 elders and they're dressed in white and they have crowns of gold. This, this is epic imagery of what he sees and encounters. And there was a song that was being sung day and night. They never stopped singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And most of us have heard this before. and We've sort of have images of this. And then at the end of this song, they say, you know, you are worthy. And then it says in chapter five, John starts this, this sort of the tension begins to build because he sees on one of the, the people on the throne, he sees that they have a, thr- a scroll in their right hand. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And a lot of us in sort of our modern understanding, we think this scroll is like the Bible. It's not how it would have been understood. Um, this scroll, you would have found this in Roman art, particularly Roman art, art and sculptures depicting emperors. And they would have in their hand a scroll. And what this symbolized was that the Roman emperor, who was viewed as a god, right, who was viewed as deity, held in his hand the destiny, the history of all mankind. The scroll was sort of representation of who controlled history. And so John sees this, and there it is. He's holding this scroll, and the angel is proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break these seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to unfold revelation, this, this revelation, this apocalypse that is to come? By the way, apocalypse has nothing to do with zombies or war. You know what the word apocalypse literally means? It means reveal, as though you would pull back a curtain and let something be seen that was previously unseen. Revelation is designed to bring clarity, believe it or not, not the opposite. So it takes some, it takes some work. So it goes on, and this is what happens. It says, there was no one on earth or under the earth that could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then look at this in verse five. Chapter five, verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, I want you to pause right there. What do you see? Like if you think King David, right? This is like David who killed Goliath. David who, who uh, I mean, he, he waged war. He killed, he, this is the root of David. This is the lion of Judah. Right? That's the picture. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we are expecting to see. Verse six, John hears this. Then he turns and what does he see? A lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is all imagery from Ezekiel. What's interesting though is that what, we, what, what our imagination is, is this, this lion that's coming to basically destroy. What do you think John is doing there? And when he turns, he sees something, not just a lamb, but a lamb that looks as though it's been slain. This is not the same picture of a conquering sort of conquest that we would think of. This is something, and that's exactly the point. John sets us up to say, this is what you were probably expecting. This is what's actually happening. You realize this is the biblical story. 
Everybody who was expecting Jesus to come, they were looking for this Messiah in the first century. You know what they were looking for? They were looking for someone to come and to put a whooping on Rome. That's why they were so surprised and could hardly believe that this kind of Messiah would show up as a baby in a manger. That's why they could hardly believe that this kind of Messiah who would get so popular would die at the hands of the Roman government because he was the one who was supposed to come and whip them. Like humans are always always getting this upside down, right? And if we learn anything, it is that God is not likely to do the kinds of things that we would do if we were God. He's probably gonna do something very differently. It's like people tell me all the time, so Mike, this, this famous rock star, they got saved and now the whole world's gonna know. I went, because that sounds just like God, doesn't it? Especially at Christmas, right? Like God can get attention if you, that's not how he does things. So John is just setting this up. You thought you were looking for a lion. It's a lamb that was slain. It's something very different. And then he goes on and the elders bow down. They worship the lamb. And there's these golden bowls full of the prayers of God's people. And they sing a new song. And here's this vision that I think John is asking to see. He says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign where? Where does it say they'll reign? Read it. On the earth. On the earth. All of a sudden it begins to disrupt all of our sensibilities about what we have thought all along. And then it gets better because they sing another song and then they open, then the lamb begins to open the seven seals. And the first seal, right, when he opens it, here comes a white horse and its rider holds a bow and was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on a conquest. Then he opens the second seal and this is the second creature and this is another horse. This is a fiery red one. Again, these horses are all from, uh, you find them in Ezekiel, you find these this imagery is, is throughout, the, is throughout the, this kind of literature. It's a fiery red horse. Its rider was given the power to take away peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. How's this feeling for Christmas so far? And then the third seal is broke, is broke up and here comes a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then he announces this idea that two pounds of wheat would be sold for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but don't damage the oil in the wine. And then comes the next horse, and this one comes out, and his name is Death and Hades. And like, all these people die. All right, we'll finish this next week. I'm just kidding. I want to see if I can do this in the last, I want, I want you to see this. Because what, what, we, what we, we can't miss is what we're looking for. What is God saying this? And a lot of us have read this. We hear about the dragons or the beasts or Armageddon. We start trying to figure out how this is all gonna unfold and which characters it plays. And the problem is what a lot of political strategies do, they try to identify these things so they can determine who they're going to attack and kill to get rid of in the name of God. This is how religious wars have been done and leveraged throughout time, trying to, to vindicate or to revenge or avenge God. What I wanna tell you is fine. And the central Problem, problematic figure in Revelation is, of course, it's the Antichrist and some other things, but it's Babylon. It's this, it's this place or this rule. It's a way of life. 
that is, that is sort of the epicenter of all this. I know this is very different. A lot of people have heard. I just want us to consider something differently in this. The Finding Babylon is not about figuring out which political leader or which nation needs to be sought out and destroyed. But I think the way that this is written, what's, what's, what's happening to us is it's much more pointed than that. This is often, this kind of literature is often written as a critique of the culture in which they lived. And it was a call for us to pay attention to our own way of life. It was a call for you to pay attention to your own way of life. And here are a few markers that I think will help us. I, I think because what we have to decide, what you have to decide, what I have to decide, is what rule is governing your life. Each of these horses, the first horse, right? It's the, um, uh, the first horse is the, the white horse. It comes with a bow and a crown. This, and I don't have time to get into this, but I'm just gonna say this. The way I would define this is, and this can be a little bit simplified or a lot simplified. But this first horse represents our capacity, the way Babylon operates, the way these rules and ways of life operate, these systems of the world. They operate by having insulated borders. In other words, what you think is if you can just create a border that's strong enough to keep you away from whatever problems might be there, then you can live with some sense of comfort and peace and hope, right? Insulated borders, whether it's, whether it's a nation or whether it's a state or whether it's a city, whether it's a neighborhood or whether it's your own yard, but like these insulated borders that prevent us from, prevent anyone else's problems from affecting us, right? If it's not a problem for me, it's not a problem for me, right? We, that's, that's sort of the mantra. So insulated borders is the first. <clears throat> Number two is this idea of what I would call peace by threat. In this particular culture in the first century, if you remember from like ninth grade history, remember Pax Romana? Remember that? So we're like, oh my gosh, my, I just, my head just split open. Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. You know what the peace of Rome was, Right? It was basically like, hey, Rome is, is, the, is the, the civilization, it's the, it's the superpower, and you're gonna have peace with Rome because if you disregard the peace of Rome or you step out of line of the peace of Rome, guess what happens to you? They kill you. So of course, be peaceful or die, not a tough option. So everybody just sort of got in their place, did their thing, and that's how Rome sort of preserved its power. It's this idea of peace by threat. It's a precarious peace. We're gonna be here for a while, so I can keep going, right? Um, it's a precarious piece. That's rain for those of you who don't know. Um, but think about this, because what he says in this passage, he says, this writer is gonna come, he's gonna have a sword, and he's gonna take away peace. And the, the, the New International Version says, and make people kill each other. But what it literally says, he's gonna, he's gonna, uh, he's gonna come with a sword, uh, and he's gonna uh, uh, take away peace so that people will kill each other. And the point is this, if you remove the power structures that keep people in their place, if I take those away, everybody's gonna turn on everybody else and they're gonna devour one another. Does that not happen? You remove the power structure, you get anarchy and someone else is gonna, this has been the history of humanity, generation after generation. So we live in these sort of precarious places of peace that are preserved basically by the threat of war. And this is the world we live in. So this is offering sort of a critique of the way we live and it's pushing on us. Are there places where we leverage our power to get our way and to preserve our own peace? What is our way in this? And the third one is this idea of what I would call scarcity prosperity. And this is just essentially the belief that you have to compete for everything you have or else someone else is gonna get it. 
Now, do you see how this sounds when you sort of talk about what does God want to do in us personally? Are there any places where you have sort of depended on insulated borders, where you don't have the time or the bandwidth to care about things that perhaps you ought to care about? And what you've been able to do is you've been able to create enough insulation between so that it doesn't affect you. These are all ways in which we operate. We need transformation in this. Are there places where you sort of leverage? Are there places where you compete because you're afraid that if you don't take what you can, it won't be available for you later? This is why most people, to be honest, aren't generous. The opposite of generosity isn't being stingy or greedy. The opposite of generosity is fear. It's if I don't take and have and hold this, I won't have it ever again. It's scarcity, prosperity. All of us, right? You begin to see this just points back on us. It's interesting. And if I have a few more minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll explain this. But the, the empire, this idea of Babylon is marked by a couple of things. This is really fascinating to me. So if you're bored, I'm not. This is fun for me. Are you with me so far? Are you following this? Okay. So these four horses are unleashed. And, and think about what happens when you remove, when, the, when we get behind these borders, when all this happens, the trajectory is, is, is this death and hellish realities that we create. Interesting about the empire, and this was made uh, observation by uh, Josh Butler and several other sociologists, different people. They talk about the empire or Babylon primarily being visible, in, invisible, invisible. It's not a central thing that you can go, you can't visit them. You can visit places that are under its rule, but you can't find, it's not visible. And it began with the way we view our economy, right? Back in the day, if you wanted to grow a pepper, you had to go out and plant a pepper tree. You had to wait for it to grow. Then you had to harvest it. Like everything required something from you. You had to go and interact and, and actually participate. Now you just go in and you hand them like a crumpled up piece of paper that has a president's picture on it and they hand you a pepper. You're like, oh, that was pretty easy. And we sort of disembodied ourselves from any of the processes. In fact, now I remember growing up in the 80s when you were running out of gas. I remember being 16 years old. You were running out of gas. You pulled up to the gas pump. You know what you did? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You began to dig under the seats of your car. And some of you are going, you can't figure out why in the world would you do that? Because there was no ATM card. There, there was no pot. There was not even a phone to call. So you had to find change. You get like a dollar sixty underneath your thing and go, oh my gosh, I can get home. You walk in there and you, you hand it to them and they you know, you fill your gas up. And every time you bought something, it was a tangible tactile exchange. You would work, cut grass, and you would get 10 $1 bills. And you would go to the store to buy a baseball card or something that you really wanted. And those $10 bills would no longer be in your possession. And now you would have something else. Everything was tactile. And now today, it's all invisible. It's like a, you tap your card or Venmo and it just, boom, it's just all this sort of mysterious thing that's happened. There's nothing, it's disembodied. The way we get our information is disembodied. It just comes to you. Sometimes unwanted, most of the time unwanted. It comes to you and it just takes your attention. It's invisible. You can't really figure out how it got to be that way. How did you spend so much time? To, you don't know what just happened. This is all what, 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 all this is sort of pointing to this. And what happens when it becomes invisible? It becomes very individual. It becomes about me and my kingdom and my tribe. And can I preserve my peace and my comfort? And what happens, this is, this is the hellish part of it. Because this sort of um, chronic individualism becomes isolation. 
and we no longer have an understanding of what it is to be humanity, and therefore we can't really understand what it means to be human. And so it's just, it's death and Hades. It always follows. So what I want for us to do, this is, we're, we're gonna get somewhere, believe it or not. But God's intention is the reconciliation of all things. And a lot of us, well-meaning, have sort of given up on the reconciliation of all things. And what we have done is we've said, you know, our hope has been reduced. And we said, well, if I can't redeem all things, I'll just work to redeem my things. I'll just take care of me and my tribe. I'll create the kind of comfort that I can. I'll control what I can, and I'll call it a day. And the reason this passage to me is so powerful, because it says we wait for this blessed hope. Y'all, this isn't, you have to prepare for this. We wait for this blessed hope, the coming of the Lord. And until then, what is he doing? He is purifying for himself a people who don't live with insulated borders. He is purifying a, a people who live with not a sort of precarious peace based on how our circumstances are our ability to control things are, but we live with a pervasive peace that's built on God's presence with us. That's what the first incarnation was about. And we live with a sense of generosity, a sense of willingness to give of ourselves that moves into this way of life that is distinctly different. And when a lot of people fall into the trap of doing is we think that you can get the world systems to get rid of their insulated borders and this sort of competitive prosperity and, and sort of precarious peace. You, you think, and, and so we spend all our time. No, it's not. God just says, let's just let my people live like this. We're just gonna commit to live like this. So my question to you is where is your hope? Is your hope in the redemption of all things? Or has it just become the redemption of your things? Like what would it be like for God to give us a blessed hope for our hope to come from him and not our capacity to make our lives work that we want, but from him, from the life he longs for us to live and the life that he longs to bring to the world. It is so easy to continue to draw insulated boundaries to ensure that our things, my things are taken care for. We can easily leverage power and influence to protect what we've created and then fall prey to thinking that every one of them is trying to take it away from you or trying to take it away from me. God, would you purify us? Would you do something in us? And I don't wanna be really careful. I'm not suggesting that this isn't true. There are people who will take advantage and do, there are, this is all, I'm not saying to be reckless or careless. But what I am saying is that there is a blessed hope that runs deeper than all of these other things. And that God is continually, his purifying us, trying to rid us of all the things that we depend upon in order to live fully and freely under his care. Leveraging our lives for the kind of redemptive activity and a longing for God to fulfill all things. Over here, what I write down is this idea personally I want to live in sort of a sense, transformation or restoration. I want to be returned to what God has made for me to be, to, to him to restore 
what has been stolen and broken. And here, the phrase that I use is redemptive activity. And I use this phrase very intentionally because it doesn't sound like a program. It doesn't sound like I have to sign up for anything. It's just the way of life. And what it is is to be convinced that every time we bear God's image in any place in the world, every time we act in his love towards another person, it brings a way of life under which humanity has been created and designed to live. And this is probably the thing that has compelled me more deeply over the last three or four years. Instead of trying to figure out how do you get bigger, how do you do this, it's like how do we learn how to extend ourselves to another person in a moment, in a place, and it'll be so easy to pull back or to compete or to do any of the other things that Mike wants to do, instead to offer myself in a way as redemptive activity, longing for this return of all things. There is a blessed hope, and we wanna ask God, can you help awaken that in me? All right, remember when we started this? Hope requires uncertainty. As much as you wanna control and figure out how this is gonna work, I can tell you how you're gonna figure out how it's gonna work, by learning how to walk by faith in it along the way. And in 25 years old, I can say, oh, that's how it's supposed to work. It is a blessed hope. The appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us and to purify for himself a people, for himself a people who are willing to live differently, zealous for good deeds. Father, would you prepare us? It's so easy to jump to wanting to celebrate your arrival into this world as an infant, to sing Christmas carols, which I, I'm, I love and I'm glad we're doing. But it's so easy to, to go there and not consider what it would be like for you to return and to see that and believe it as a blessed hope, something that fuels us every day. So Father, you know, I do confess, I wish you'd have made this clearer. Um, Revelation was written differently, but this is what we get. So we get the opportunity to sit and to listen and to wrestle and to ask and to seek and to knock. Now, would you be so faithful to reveal to us um, how it is that we are to live in this world, um, zealous for your work in it. And I ask all this in your son, Jesus, who is our king, Amen.